Hello, and welcome to the Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout. Each week we explore classic sci-fi from the atomic age and beyond. I'm your host, Brad Grahowski, the voice of Brad.com. This week we conclude Flight of Tomorrow with Chapter 4, the final chapter. Written by Henry Beam Piper. Originally published in 1950 in the popular science fiction magazine, Science Fiction Stories. I'm excited to hear how our story ends. Let's continue. Flight from Tomorrow, Chapter 4. Almost at once, there was a new sound, a multiple throbbing at a quick, snarling tempo that hinted at enormous power, growing louder each second. Brodska stiffened and drew his blaster. As he did, five more aircraft swooped over the crest of the mountain and came rushing down toward him, not aimlessly, but as though they knew exactly where he was. As they approached, the leading edges of their wings sparkled with light, branches began flying from the trees about him, and there was a loud hammering noise. He aimed a little in front of them and began blasting. A wing flew from one of the craft and it plunged downward. Another came apart in the air. A third burst into flames. The other two zoomed upward quickly. Rodska swung his blaster after them, blasting again and again. He hit a fourth with a blast of energy, knocking it to pieces, and then the fifth was out of range. He blasted at it twice, but without effect. A hand blaster was only good for a thousand yards at the most. Holstering his weapon, he hurried away, following the stream and keeping under cover of trees. The last of the attacking aircraft had gone away, but the little scout plane was still circling about, well out of blaster range. Once or twice, Rodska was compelled to stay hidden for some time, not knowing the nature of the pilot's ability to detect him. It was during one of these waits that the next phase of the attack developed. It began like the last one with a distant roar that swelled in volume until it seemed to fill the whole world. Then, fifteen or twenty thousand feet out of blaster range, the new attackers swept into sight. There must have been fifty of them, huge, tapering things with widespread wings, flying in close formation, wave after V-shaped wave. He stood and stared at them, amazed, he had never imagined that such aircraft existed in the first century. Then a high-pitched screaming sound cut through the roar of the propellers, and for an instant he saw countless small specks in the sky falling downward. The first bomb salvo landed in the young pines, where he had fought against the first air attack. Great gouts of flame shot upward, and smoke, and flying earth and debris. Rotska turned and started to run. Another salvo fell in front of him. He veered to the left and plunged on through the undergrowth. Now the bombs were falling all about him, deafening him with their thunder, shaking him with concussions. He dodged, frightened, as the trunk of a tree came crashing down beside him. Then something hit him across the back, knocking him flat. For a moment he lay stunned, then tried to rise. As he did, a searing light filled his eyes and a wave of intolerable heat swept over him. Then, darkness. 
Hmm, no, Zarvis Pole, Kradzi Zago repeated. Radska will not return. The time machine was sabotaged. So, by you? the soldier asked. The scientist nodded. I knew the purpose for which he intended it. Horatska was not content with having enslaved a whole solar system. He hungered to bring tyranny and serfdom to all the past and all the future as well. He wanted to be master not only of the present, but of the centuries that were and were to be as well. I never took part in politics, Zarvis Pole. I had no hand in this revolt but I could not be party to such a crime as Radska contemplated when it lay within my power to prevent it. The machine will take him out of our space-time continuum, or back to a time when this planet was a swirling cloud of flaming gas, Zarvis Pole asked. Kradzi Zargo shook his head. No, the unit is not powerful enough for that. It will only take him about 10,000 years into the past, but then when it stops, the machine will destroy itself. It may destroy Ratska with it, or he may escape, but if he does, he will be left stranded ten thousand years ago when he can do us no harm. Actually, it did not operate as he imagined, and there is an infinitely small chance that he could have returned to our time in any event, but I wanted to ensure against even so small a chance. We can't be sure of that. Sarvis Pole objected. He may know more about the machine than you think, enough more to build another like it. So you must build me a machine and I'll take back a party of volunteers and hunt him down. That would not be necessary, and you would only share his fate. Then, apparently changing the subject, Kradzi Zargo asked, Tell me, Sarvis Pole, have you never heard the legends of the deadly radiations? General Zarvis smiled. Who is not? Every cadet at the officer's college dreams of rediscovering them, to use as a weapon, but nobody ever has. We hear these tales of how, in the early days, atomic engines and piles of fission bombs emitted particles which were utterly deadly, which would make anything with which they came in contact deadly, which would bring a horrible death to any human being. But these are only myths. All the ancient experiments have been duplicated time and again, and the deadly radiation effect has never been observed. Some say that it is a mere old wives' terror tale. Some say that the deaths were caused by fear of atomic energy when it was still unfamiliar. Others contend that the fundamental nature of atomic energy has altered by the denigration of the fissionable matter. For my own part, I am not enough of a scientist to have an opinion. The old one smiled wanly. None of these theories are correct. In the beginning of the atomic era, the deadly radiations existed. They still exist, but they are no longer deadly, because all life on this planet has adapted itself to such radiations, and all living things are now immune to them. And Radska has returned to a time when such immunity did not exist. But would that not be to his advantage? Remember, General, that a man has been using atomic energy for 10,000 years. Our whole world has become drenched with radioactivity. The planet, the seas, the atmosphere, and every living thing are all 
radioactive now. Radioactivity is as natural to us as the air we breathe. Now you remember hearing of the great wars of the first century of the atomic era, in which whole nations were wiped out, leaving only hundreds of survivors out of millions. You, no doubt, think that such tales are products of ignorant and barbaric imagination, but I assure you, they are literally true. It was not the blast effect of a few bombs which created such holocausts, but the radiations released by the bombs. And those who survived to carry on the race were men and women whose systems resisted the radiation, and they transmitted to their progeny that power of resistance. In many cases, their children were mutants, not monsters, although there were many of them, too, which did not survive, but humans who are immune to radioactivity. An interesting theory, Kradzizago, the soldier commented, and one which conforms both to what we know of atomic energy and to the ancient legends. Then you would say that those radiations are still deadly to the non-immune. Exactly. And Herodska, his body emitting those radiations, has returned to the first century of the atomic era, to a world without immunity. General Zarvis' smile vanished. Man, he cried in horror, you have loosed a carrier of death among those innocent people of the past. Kradzi Zargo nodded. That is true. I estimate that Hradska will probably cause the death of a hundred or so people before he is dealt with. But dealt with he will be. Tell me, General, if a man should appear now out of nowhere, spreading a strange and horrible plague wherever he went, what would you do? Why, I'd hunt him down and kill him, General Zarvis replied. Not for anything he did, but for the menace he was. And then I'd cover his body with a mass of concrete bigger than this palace. Precisely, Kradzi Zargo smiled. And the military commanders and political leaders of the first century were no less ruthless or efficient than you. You know how atomic energy was first used? There was an ancient nation, upon the ruins of whose cities we have built our own, which was famed for its idealistic humanitarianism. Yet that nation, treacherously attacked, created the first atomic bombs in self-defense and used them. It is among the people of that nation that Horatska has emerged. But would they recognize him as the cause of the calamity he brings among them? Of course, he will emerge at the time when atomic energy is first being used. They will have detectors for the deadly radiations, detectors we know nothing of today, for a detection instrument must be free from the thing it is intended to detect, and today everything is so radioactive. It will be a day or so before they discover what is happening to them, and not a few will die in that time, I fear. But once they have found out what is killing their people, Radzka's days, no, his hours, will be numbered. Ugh, a mass of concrete bigger than this palace, Tob the slave repeated General Zarvis' words. The ancient spaceport! Prince Bervani clapped him on the shoulder. Tob, man, you've hit it. You mean, Kradzi Zargo began, Yes, you all know of it. 
It stood for nobody knows how many millennia, and nobody's ever decided what it was to begin with. Except that somebody, once, filled a valley with concrete, level from mountaintop to mountaintop. The accepted theory is that it was done for a firing stand for the first moon rocket. But gentlemen, our friend Tobbs explained it. It is the tomb of Radska, and it has been the tomb of Radska for 10,000 years before Radska was born. We hope you've enjoyed Flight from Tomorrow, written by Henry Beam Piper, narrated by Brad Grahowski. For more information about Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, visit thevoiceofbrad.com spaceman. If you are enjoying Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout is written, produced, edited, and performed by Brad Grahowski. We leave you with a moment from our next story, The Holes Around Mars, written by Jerome Bixby, originally published in Galaxy Science Fiction in January of 1954. He gazed out the front port at the uneven blue-green haze of a canal off to our left. For the love of heaven, why? Then Alan B. fell down. We all did. Burton had suddenly slapped at the control board, and the ship braked and sank like a plugged duck. At the last second, Burton propped up the nose with a short burst. The ten-foot wheels hit desert sand, and in 500 yards, we had jounced to a stop. Thank you, and journey well among the stars.